empower Zell. the podcast about politics and culture in the South and things going on this week with me. As always, from the Commissioner's Bunker in Houston, Texas, is Chad Watson. Howdy, y'all. And from the absolute opposite of the Commissioner's Bunker in Mexico, David Dykes. Hello. And I'm Wes Cheek. I'm here uh, in the basement of Tulane, which is very quiet because it is spring break, which is nice. So, uh, how are things in Mexico, David? Uh, hello. Things yeah, sorry. I'm having a little bit of connectivity problem down here in Mexico. But um, everything's good. I just started my spring break, too. We get two weeks for Easter. Um, we run on sort of a boarding school schedule, even though we're not a boarding school. But we take a few long holidays instead of a lot of small ones. So, we get two full weeks. And... Uh, I've got a friend coming into town in a couple of days, and um, I don't have much money, so I don't have a lot of plans. I might go down to Mexico City because everybody goes to the beach, and it's a great time to go see the museums and uh, get a little culture in in the big city. And so I'll probably do that in the coming week, and uh, yeah, everything's been great. Commissioner Chad, how are, how are things in Draft Central? Uh, here in Draft Center, well, Central, I, w- I spent most of the weekend preparing uh, for the draft, and uh, I was preparing also my letter, my apology letters to be sent out to everyone <laughs> in the uh, in the league. Uh, and on top of that, I was uh, I spent Saturday with some kids, but it wasn't uh, it was not protesting; it was uh, studying for AP exams. What's a form of protest? Yeah, that is against ignorance. <laughs> that's right. I was protesting ignorance. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's what I was doing. And then I went back and wrote some more apologies to everyone in the league. And, and uh, You signed read, a letter for the next commissioner that says, step one, apologize. Step, step two, one, apologize. I read, I think I read the entirety of the Yahoo <laughs> baseball, fantasy baseball commissioner's uh, uh, message board, uh, which was no help. And, um, yeah, here we are. Well, it's okay. My keepers are still there. Play ball. Me yeah, yours and, are. Me and Paul Goldschmidt just hanging <laughs> out for another year. I drafted him back when he was 17. Yeah, so New Orleans has been pretty exciting this week. Monday we had St. Joseph's Night, which is my favorite night of the year. I love it more than, than Mardi Gras. It's uh, St. Joseph's Night is when the Mardi Gras Indians traditionally go out in the streets and and do battle with each other, both metaphorical and sometimes literal. Um, and I go to watch the Uptown Indians near my house to, at Second and Dryads, Sportsman's Corner, and that's where the uh, Wild Magnolias come out with, with Bo Dallas. It used to be Big Chief Bo Dallas, now it's his son, Lil' Bo Dallas. Um, and I usually follow them around. And last year, Bo Dallas didn't, didn't make a costume, and his niece was kind of running things, and it was really fun. And this year, Bo Dallas was back in costume, and uh, the Wild Magnolias had made this big, like, archway, this big, like, feathered yellow archway they carried over him, which I thought was pretty interesting because when the Indians face off, they make... Everyone was forced to... Who was confronting him had to walk through the archway. But it ended up, I don't know, pretty quickly turning into an actual fist fight in the streets between... Uh, Wild Magnolias, and I think the Golden Eagles, I think uh, there was a big fist fight, and I was standing there saying, oh, well, look, I, now I'm in the middle of a Mardi Gras Indian fist fight. Um, and then then they Wild Magnolias like, stayed in the middle of the street and weren't letting anybody come past, including the Black Flame Hunters, who had like, a giant entourage. So it ended up being a kind of interesting, interesting St. Joseph's night. Uh, Little little wild Sancho's this night. Not as wild as they used to be. Nobody got hit in the head with a hatchet, so that I know of. Um, so that, there was that. And then Saturday, yesterday, we had the big 
uh, March for Our Lives march here in New Orleans, which was down on the other side of town. And I went down there, and it seemed like a smaller at first than the Women's March was last year. But then by the time we got to the end of the march, I think it picked up a lot of people. So I doubled back at the end to go home. And it turns out, I thought I was kind of in the middle of the march, but it was just massive, massive amounts of people behind us. So I don't know what the final estimate was, but it was a really good, really good turnout. Uh, beautiful weather, nice day for it. The, the only thing you get with those marches, like every protest march I've ever been in, has like uh, a few like white guys on the side of varying ages who kind of stand and like look at you disapprovingly and kind of shake their heads. Uh, and so this time we had the one guy kind of probably a tourist holding his daughter, just mumbling Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump at us, which was odd. And then we had one older guy in a camouflage hat yelling, put the military in schools, put the military in schools, which seems like a great policy idea. Well, most Uh, of the military's um, uh, in the military because they want to go to school. And then we uh, we had the guy who was like in full operator fashion style with a giant beard, sunglasses, and a ball cap, uh, but also vaping uncontrollably, just just shaking his head like uh uh-uh, 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 over and over again. But other than that, it was pretty nice. We had a pretty good response other than than that. Uh, And then today was also another great march that I really wanted to go to, but I couldn't because sometimes I have to watch children, which was uh, the Take Em Down NOLA group here had groups from all over the South and also the Caribbean, at a symposium or a summit here to talk about tactics and strategies of how to get monuments down, and they were in the streets today going to different monuments and explaining why they should be taken down. Um, and these ones, I think, are going to be, this round is going to be more difficult than the last round because they are no longer Confederate figures, not all of them. It's figures like Bienville and then Andrew Jackson and things like that, which I, I agree with there. Uh, reasoning on these things, I just think it's going to be a harder rhetorical argument to make to the public at large. So it's been a very busy week in New Orleans this week. Also, oh, one other thing. Also, I went to the, I went, last night, I went to the fight to win professional jujitsu fights here because uh, some of my friends were competing. And, I, you know, I've been to tons of small-scale mixed martial arts and jujitsu fights in Japan. I haven't gone so much in America, so it was a very interesting to go especially in southeastern Louisiana and see the kind of like the cultural milieu of the people who go to professional fights in in southeast Louisiana uh, we had uh, a lot of people who very earnestly wear their coveralls at night mm-hmm. um, and also look like they could probably rip my head off uh, and, uh, and we also then we also had like um, African American people with Jesus patches all over, and then we have like just we have like the nerdy nerdy emo nineteen year old mixed martial arts practitioner section, um, and then we had the people who was probably a big sacrifice for them to not open carry inside the arena. And then we also had, like, the people... I saw, in honest to God, a Kevlar baby Bjorn. Camouflage Kevlar baby Bjorn. That was interesting. Um, and, you know, I, one thing I like about jujitsu is I do hang out with all of those people in kind of a positive context, but it was an interesting mix of people. So, anyway, for this week, we have lots of stuff going on to talk about, but we thought uh, since the, the March for Our Lives was going on, Yesterday, one interesting thing that has come up was one of one of my favorite public figures, Killer Mike, has got himself in a little bit of a brouhaha over making a video with the NRA. So, David, you were bringing this up to me. So, kind of, what is the the basic substance of what Killer Mike said? Well, he's just pro gun. You know, he's um, uh, pro hunting, pro. Uh, self-defense. I mean, he's he's not got a radical uh, sort of view by you know gun enthusiast uh, standards, but I just thought it was interesting because it kind of breaks the 
the usual mold, uh, the idea, the stereotype of who's going to be out there supporting gun rights in a really aggressive way against what to me seemed like really common sense um, uh, things like he wasn't speaking out against banning guns. He was speaking out against protesting uh, the sale of AR-15s and uh, protesting the sale of guns without background checks and that sort of stuff. Um, and so I just thought he was an interesting voice to be coming from that direction because maybe not the voice that most people would expect, although it's sort of consistent with uh, um, his his sort of uh, uh, liberty uh, uh, and civil liberty position in a lot of ways. So Yeah, I heard him speak about, when I've seen him in person speak about this before, and, you know, it's a difference of opinion I have with him, but... I think he's making a good faith argument about his belief in guns. Um, so, so the only real difference I have with him, of opinion I have with him on this is that I don't think you should ever partner with the NRA because even if you're making a good faith argument about guns, they aren't. So it's not going to turn out well. Um, and so there's two different things going here. First, the NRA thing. I don't know if you saw his kind of clarification. I don't know if I call it an apology, but he put out a statement today about it. Did you happen to see that? Oh, no, I didn't see that. I didn't see it. No, I didn't. So, so he was saying that he recorded this interview a week ago with NRA TV to clarify why he thought that African Americans in particular should have access to guns and that he wasn't intending it as something to be going up against the March for Our Lives protest, which he says that he supports very much. So he was saying today that, um, that you know, he differs on guns, but he feels that he's an ally to the people planning the marches and that it should never have been put, like he was saying, that they shouldn't be doing that, that he personally doesn't agree with them on that, but he thinks that it's very, very good that they're organizing and they should keep organizing and keep marching uh, about it because there can be differences of opinions between people who are allies with each other. Um, and if you... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that's a, that's a very good point. Yeah, and if you... If you've ever listened to Killer Mike speak seriously about this stuff, he's you know he's been involved in social activism since high school, and so he thinks he's when I've heard him talk about it anyway, he's like uh, not arbitrary in his thinking about strategy about organizing. He's very serious about organizing. So um, it seems to me like a bad decision to talk to NRA TV about this stuff because I think they're horrible. We're going to use everything that you do for only their benefit. But I understand his reasoning. And, and then the other track on that is that his reasoning about African Americans owning uh, guns and having access to guns is, I think, a completely rational argument that maybe I don't agree with him on the particulars of, but I completely understand why he makes that argument. Uh, yeah, well, I, I think that the that in the African American community that the arguments for and against are just sort of intensified. I mean, there's more poverty there, and that leads to often, in many communities, more violence. And so you're more likely to want a gun to protect yourself. You're also more likely to think that guns need to be better regulated and legislated because you're more likely to be the victim of a crime. And then in um, rural black communities, um, you know, just like rural white communities, there's plenty of hunting and uh, when you live alone out in the country, maybe you have a few more reasons to want to make sure that you're armed if you're African-American. Uh, well, not just maybe, definitely. Uh, historically and, uh, you know, history seems to be repeating itself pretty hard these days. So, Yeah, I mean, we know that during a lot of the worst of lynching and Jim Crow that there were small rural African-American communities, especially in the South, that did have to use guns to defend themselves were actually, you know, fending off the, the KKK through being armed. Uh, and I, I don't think that connection is so distant that we can just write it off. And also, Killer Mike, I've heard him make the point before, is that law enforcement also doesn't respond to your neighborhood in the same way if you're 
African-American neighborhood, that those inequalities are also seen there. And so one of the arguments I've heard him make is that he's armed because he doesn't trust the police to uh, respond to his to his house. Which, which is a hard argument yes. for me to just write uh, I mean, I think people, what people are afraid of is um, uh, what in the arms talk they used to call unilateral disarmament. Yeah. They're like, the criminals will keep having guns, and so I want to keep having my gun. Uh, and it makes a certain amount of sense if you're uh, in a position where you are legitimately afraid, or it, whatever your position is, if you're afraid, then it feels legitimate to you. Yeah, and the, um, the counter-argument I've seen made, I've seen Tariq Nasheed make this argument, uh, was that no organization in America, or almost no organization, cares less about black people than the NRA if you look at the record. So I don't know that I would, that partnering with them is great. Or recently, I should say. I mean, what did they do for Philando Castile's family, you know, who's absolutely law-abiding, permit-holding gun carrier who was murdered by the police? Yeah, there wasn't a lot of comment about that. No. It was interesting. Was it last week that on the they had the, um, on uh, on the media, they had the, uh, we're talking about the history of the NRA, and like I how it, yeah, it was like how it kind of transitioned from like a, it ta- started ta- started talking about the the start of it, which was like after the Civil War, and then like how like in the, it was like the early twentieth century they were basically like a hunting they re- they really were like a hunting aficionado, but then it's sort of gotten taken over by I mean by, sort of became what it is now and and um. It was interesting. I'll, uh, I think it's the lady. She wrote the the loaded book. The that lady. Right, right, right. Yeah. I think it was her that was on it. It might not have been last. Maybe it was the week before. It was real. Yeah, loaded was written by. Uh, I just forgot. Oh, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. But I think you know. It's. I think it's correct to say that there's there's a lot more texture in the in the gun argument than we usually allow for in popular discourse and that I don't think we can just say, oh, Killer Mike's wrong about this. I mean, I wouldn't, as I keep saying, I wouldn't align myself with the NRA on it, but he said he was having, you know, a conversation that he wanted people to know why he thinks that African-American people should should be armed. And we've said before in here, there's, you know, uh, there, there is a big connection broadly across uh, leftist and socialist groups as well an argument saying that people should be armed not so that we can Red Dawn style fight off an invasion or the government but that it, uh, groups that are suffering <laughs> under oppression are also fall victim to violence especially in some cases from like paramilitary groups or uh, you know racist organizations and that uh, self-defense is something that, that we shouldn't uh, take away from them just because of other violence that is happening. And I, I myself am very conflicted about that argument because I'm not a big fan of guns, but I also realize that violence is, is perpetrated to people unequally. So, But, I mean, like, the loudest voices are not those voices. The loudest voices are those, like, the, the people who... You know, like you know, they share the three percent. You know, they reshare all the three percent militia stuff, and they share like, well, Hitler took away. Like, how do you think Hitler became Hitler, <laughs> taking away everybody's guns? Like, if you, like, if you agree, and uh, you know, I mean, those are like the voice. I mean, those are the voices that we. And then we you just hear the other voices of, you know, what's, I don't know, you know, you hear the other voices of. Can we be reasonable? Can we be reasonable about this? Well, what if the government comes to, what if, what if, what if, yeah, like, what if Red Dawn comes? What if Red Dawn happens? What are we going to do? Or what, if, <laughs> what if Obama returns? What if Obama returns Return to Obama. Uh, <laughs> take back our, you know, take I have back a question our, uh, for you guys. It's about yeah. the sort of um, sovereign citizen um, people and maybe people not quite as far gone as that, but. Uh, yes, I don't have a driver's license. I was having a discussion online today. Yeah. And somebody in it and some and the person I was having it with talked to me about being a teacher and what I taught kids mm-hmm. and whether I was indoctrinating them into liberalism oh, or hell, not. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 
and um, <laughs> and one of the people said, "Well, I, well, just FYI, the U.S. was founded as a republic, I not still, a democracy." It's always the dumbest. This is the dumbest. And then just saying, and so I was curious. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I know that that's part of Wait. one of those Wait. completely specious yeah. arguments. But I'm not quite sure what comes after that because I wasn't about ready to engage him in it. But I've heard it at some point, people who don't understand that republics can be democratic and that their democracy means a broad range of different things and did to the founders and one thing and another. But uh, do you guys know what that's, what that's driving at? Well, they, people like to do that. It's, it, one, it's, it's fun because it's pedantic for people, right? It's pedantic. But uh, what is driving at with a lot of people, I think, is people who are authoritarian personalities who are uncomfortable with the idea of democracy and like telling people that they need to shut up. And so the idea of a republic seems more structured there. But we're a constitutional republic, which under the idea of a constitutional republic is a representative democracy, right? So it's not like they're yeah. two separate competing things. They're both... Interconnected things. Right. And like their argument is like they're like when they say, well, like I think, you know, guns mean freedom. And if you you can't have free, if you take away your freedom, then you can't have guns. And guns mean security. And you can't have, if you can't have security without having guns, you can't have freedom. And then people say, well, you look, like, there's 730 marches where, like, millions of people are out protesting in the streets, like, saying that, you know, like, we're, we don't want people to be gunned down. Like, we, we, we're protesting gun violence. But then they say, oh, well, you know, like, if everybody, like, if this was a democracy, like, yeah, it's not a democracy. Like, if, you know, like, because more people are, I, well, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, like, more people... They feel like, yeah, they're being Oh, okay, and so saying this isn't a democracy is a way of saying... That's kind of the thing. They feel outnumbered. It doesn't make a difference if more people are... feel like they have less freedom when everybody has a gun. Right. But this... Yeah, (laughs) listen to the grown-up. This goes to the heart of why these arguments with, with people who say things like that are ridiculous, because they don't actually care about the point of whether it's a democracy or a republic. They care about avoiding avoiding the uncomfortable argument that they don't want to have, just like every other argument that they have. They don't care about what the differences between a constitutional republic and a direct democracy are. They they care about the, the pedantry because it allows them to argue about that instead of other things, right? And and the point of having mass protests is to make people feel uncomfortable and outnumbered. Um, so, like, when I was talking about the guys shaking their heads next to the march, I think that's what's going on. Is like, all of a sudden, you don't feel like you're the majority opinion. And so uh, a lot of people then act like that has to go through their approval, uh, right? Like, I get to approve or not of this. So saying, well, it's a republic means, uh, well all of these opinions that are uncomfortable to me that seem to have traction also have to go through this process, right? And so I can be pedantic about that process instead of talking about the issue. Well, it all depends on how you define being shot. (laughs) Well, that... Yeah. Well, and also the... They like these people. Like they... These people. uh, Sorry. Um, uh, These three... My friends, uh, um, they, you know, they say all this, oh, well, you know, technically uh, we live in a republic. This is not a democracy. This is, these are also, if you scroll back a couple of days in their timeline, they're like, the reason why we need guns is because we can't trust the government. And, but then like a couple of days later, they say something like, listen, kids, well, I mean, it's, like, you I'm don't understand. You need like to you, trust uh, the government. You're asking about sovereign citizens. Uh, so we hear the argument all the time. We need to have guns so that we can... And this is abstracted, but the argument is murder troops, murder cops, right? And then when federal agents, federal agents, and so when when right wing armed people actually do go out and murder <laughs> cops, murder federal DMV agents, workers. murder DMV workers, then it's kind of like, oh, well, I don't know what's going on here. That's kind of weird. Why is that happening? 
So we've just been explicitly arguing that we have to have guns so that you can murder cops and murder <laughs> troops. Like, I don't... It seemed like a... Well, I think... And then they're also, like... Like, well... Okay, I'll, I'll, like, they're, they're, like, when the... Uh, when oh like yeah like the, we need to you know the police protect you know like when the police come after us like we're gonna or the government comes after us but then like when some kid gets shot in his own backyard Holding some black phone. kid gets Holding shot in his, his own backyard phone. it's like well he must have been doing something wrong he was playing in the park and I'm, yeah he was holding a cell phone he was having a barbecue so <laughs> uh, okay, well I think part of the problem is that um, for a lot of people. On one side, they can't imagine that somebody holding a gun is anyone other than themselves, and that they can't imagine themselves in that position with anything other Mm -hmm. than absolute clarity about what's right, what's wrong, who needs to be shot, who doesn't need to be shot. On the other side, there are people who can't imagine themselves in any position except being hunted down by somebody with some barbarous ideology uh, or just an insane person hunting them down somewhere. Um, And the the people who are sometimes on the right, but there are, as we were just talking about, people all the way across the political spectrum who are very pro-gun. Well, I think they often don't realize that that crazy person hunting people down believes himself to be completely justified believes himself to be the hero of the story of course I mean that's why it works right yeah <laughs> he, he's the one that jumped <laughs> in the I have one high school stuff. acquaintance who always posts that meme of your friends and he also he posts that and then interspersed with that is like, uh, why won't they let me see my children anymore? And 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 I can't believe I did so much LSD. Why can't I get a job? Like, Man, you're already doing revolution stuff right now. You were in the van doing revolution stuff. All over. You had a revolution inside your personal um. life <laughs> that has separated the bonds. <laughs> Sanity. No. no, but I mean, you know, um, but that's we're talking about this pedantic argument. I mean, this the where per, where is there more per capita pedantic arguments than over the gun debate? It's infuriating. It's annoying. Uh, it's crazy, but it's just a way of avoiding. Like I think, whenever there is an argument, like where very real, raw human emotions are involved, you try to abstract that into pedantry as much as possible. Well, especially if you know you're not going to win on emotional terms. And that's part of my problem. Well, I don't have a problem with the um, with the protests and all that stuff. I have a problem with a public that can't hear this message unless it's coming from children. Mm-hmm. The, the, the I mean, they're not saying anything new. Mm-hmm. There, it's just coming from somebody who's fresh-faced and generally speaking, but not all, and they've been very sort of good about uh, acknowledging this and trying to change it some, but a fresh-faced, white, um, middle-class or upper-middle-class kid. Okay. So I was basically saying that that they can hear it because it's coming from children, but also that gives the right a chance to take some 17-year-old kid, David Hogg. He seems like a kind of great kid who's really uh, sort of impassioned about things. And pretty right-minded, but he also says some sort of bonehead things because seventeen-year-olds say bonehead things. And um, you know, it's a lot easier to tear that apart than if somebody like Noam Chomsky says it. And so um, that's my concern about the movement being in the hands of kids at the moment. Mm-hmm. Although it's not entirely in the hands of kids, but you know what I'm saying—that. Uh, uh, in a constant race to discredit anybody, yeah. uh, you look like a bully if you attack a kid, and that protects him in a certain way. But also, kids say the wrong things sometimes, um, and hopefully, the public will be able to sort through 
and figure out where these kids are right on and kind of uh, uh, shrug a little bit or even uh, smile a little bit when they... Like, there was some comment about uh, uh, old parents who can't send an iMessage. Right. Yeah, I mean... And it's like... And saying uh, uh, adults <laughs> can't handle democracy, so we're going to come and teach them how to do it the same way we teach them to use an iPhone. Mm. And it's like, you know, you didn't invent the iPhone. That was actually some adult old people. Very old um, people. They're so old they're dead now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, rest in peace, whoever invented the iPhone. <laughs> rest in peace. <laughs> oh, we had to curse Steve won. Jobs and his and his death. I I was, I was kind Siri. of. I said I said whoever invented the uh, <laughs> iPhone probably the died of cancer. And then, but you know, you know, they're in a tough. I mean, I think they're the, Siri. the these kids as activists are going to be in a tough position, and they're handling it very well for the circumstances. I think they've done a very good job of saying we recognize that we're in a privileged position and that people are listening to us for, you know, a host of reasons, but some of those reasons being that we're white and from an affluent suburb and have had an education that allows us to kind of be prepared to speak on TV, uh, you know. But at, at the same time, there were young people who shut down the freeway in Sacramento um, over the police killing another, you know, black man there the other night and and it received some attention but they're not being asked to organize national protests right they're not receiving $500,000 checks from Oprah and George Clooney and there's a whole host of reasons for that some of which are really obvious some of which are probably less obvious but they're all baked into the to the system of the way things work and I and I think that they have tried to handle that and tried to acknowledge that that's the situation but you're right I mean one of them you know, we don't even know who we're defining them as, but some of the people organizing this now are going to slip up and say something bad and say something that's mean or say something that's dumb or do something that's dumb and all of all the forces aligned against them are gonna be waiting to pounce on it. So, you know, that's the that's why it's hard to be an activist and why not many people well, want yeah, to do it. Well yeah, because um you don't have to be seventeen years old to say something dumb in public. Yeah, I do it all the time for a living. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, me too. I do it for a living. Uh, no, but yeah, it's hard. So speaking of of gun culture, there was a really interesting piece in the Boston Review this week by Walter Johnson that I thought was very well done. And it was not exactly about the South, but it was about, I think, the kind of gun culture that is familiar to us, and I want to talk a few things about it. So, um, just it begins with the first line saying, "It is impossible for me to remember my father without thinking about guns," and I think that is incontrovertibly true for me. Yeah, me too. Uh, and so, you know, he has this paragraph in here about going goose hunting with his dad. He says, I remember that long drive in the early hours of the morning before the rest of the world was awake, the warmth of the heater in the car, the homey familiarity of AM radio, the lonely glow of the lights left on the overnight outside the farmhouses across the fields from the road. Um, it's like all of this seems very, very familiar. But he ties this into not only going goose hunting and going deer hunting, but to dangerous things happening with guns, guns going off, guns firing over people's heads, and always trying to find a way. Everyone rationalizes how that happened and how people were really using good judgment, and it was okay. And then he transitions this into kind of domestic violence and his neighbor's life and that everyone had a gun, loaded guns around all the time, and sometimes they accidentally went off. And that kind of the... the the construction of masculinity in his neighborhood was based around these guns and kind of who who responded to burglaries quickest and who got the drop on people and who had these guns in the house. And the kind of point of it is him saying that you can't untangle these stories about, about uh, guns and gun ownership and gun culture without getting into really messy ideas of kind of 
gender, masculinity, racism, all these things that are, that are tied up in it. So I thought it was a very good article I recommend by Walter Johnson in the Boston Review called Guns in the Family. It is really good. It, it hit a lot of notes with me, and I think I've spoken before about the end of my father's life when he became increasingly um, sort of terrified that, that he was going to suffer a home invasion and bought gun after gun, and I realized that mm-hmm. it was just like when he was scared, he got a gun because he, he thought that's what you did when you were scared, even if you already had a gun. And um, uh, the stories about guns going off, I have to say, I never, I don't think any of the time that I was a kid Mm. that I ever knew anybody to set off a gun accidentally except myself, and I did it once. Um, Mm -hmm. And I wasn't very comfortable with, uh, I was like the, the... the kid in the story where he or in the in the article where he talks about going out hunting and pretending to shoot right yeah because he didn't really want to kill something because then you have to deal with the dead thing right right um there's another passage in here i was going to say so it's talking about his uh so i'll just read from his story a week later my father was in the icu with pneumonia he was a lifelong smoker and the cold and exertion that day talking about when he shot a deer had been too much for his enfeebled lungs he lived a few more years in and out of the hospital and finally died november of 2001 close to the anniversary of his last kill and three weeks before the birth of my second child his first grandson on the floor by his chair in the living room, in a way that now seems as weirdly unaccountable as it once did a natural fact of my father's existence, said his AR-15, bump-stocked and fully automatic. Yikes. Yep. But every part of that is like, oh, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about, including the ICU and pneumonia. Uh, yeah, well, uh, my dad, it wasn't pneumonia, but yeah, it's just like... Um I guess you live your whole life that way if that's how you're going to live your life. Right. And so his kind of conclusion is, and I think a very accurate one, in other words, the defense of gun ownership has always been rooted in anxieties about the need to defend white homesteads and households against a racialized gendered threat, blacks, Indians, women who threaten their husbands' masculinity, kids who want to obey their fathers. Add to this that the rising generation of school shooters has come of age over almost two decades of continuous war, They're an imperial generation, and we wonder that they fetishize force. They live in a society that deals with social problems by putting people in cages, that thinks that the first response to any problem should be to add a gun to it. And I think, yes, bingo. Well, yeah, and we're seeing that especially in in schools, you know, more guns, just more guns. A gun problem, add more guns. And military and schools. Yeah, add militarization, add guns to it. I mean, that's what we get for disasters all the time. Like, oh, uh, what do you hear when, like, a disaster response isn't going well? Like, where's the army? It's like, was that what you want? Do you want the army? Um, and for schools, well, just pour in the army, pour in the police. Whatever, whatever state-sponsored violence we can put there will surely solve the problem, right? Because that's what it does. Well, I think part of that comes from so few of the kind of white middle-class people serving in the army anymore, and they don't realize how many fuck-ups are in the army. Not everybody in the uh, army is a clear-headed hero who is always going to do exactly the right thing. I mean, the stories I know from my friends in the army and from my Mm -hmm. students in the army and one thing and another um, are kind of horrifying. You understand why they don't let those kids carry guns around, loaded guns around on the base. Yeah. Well, my dad's story about being in Vietnam was the first thing they would do when new people would show up was they take away all their grenades. <laughs> I can't they even imagine. They, they don't trust They don't trust you to, like, have a grenade. And the reason, this is horrible, but the reason was what people would do is panic, throw one, not realizing they're in a jungle, hit the first tree 10 feet away and have it bounce back and blow everybody up. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, I grew up in a military town, and it's like, you know, there are great people in the military. There are brilliant people in the military. There are very calm, clear-headed people in the military, and there are also absolute fuck-ups in the military. And there's a small percentage of people who are deranged sociopaths, just like any other 
segment of society. Maybe a little bit more than some other segments of society. Well, there's self-selection, right? Yeah. It's kind of like the Stanford prison experiments. It's like, would you like to come uh, do warfare? You know, you're going to get people who want to do warfare. Um, I was just reading a piece about how PTSD rates are actually higher for people who uh, d- don't serve in combat, and they're trying to figure out why. And one of the reasons they're saying maybe people who just sign up are already a bit predisposed to these things, or maybe the lifestyle, the loneliness, separation, all these things. I haven't read it fully, but it seems interesting. Yeah, I was um, talking earlier with um, Jake, and he was talking about uh, how many people in combat actually try to kill people and how many people just mm-hmm. fire their guns and uh, do their best not to right. know whether they hit anybody or not. And, um, yeah. you know, there's a lot of people... It's very hard to teach people to be uh, okay with even maybe having killed somebody. Or at least yeah, we've most about people... Before, but I, yeah, I don't know what the current numbers are. I know that after World War II, they did the big study and said that it's like less than 90% of people who were even in combat like shot at people. Like, they wouldn't do it. They would shoot in that direction. Yeah, I, have a fr- I had a teacher uh, who served in Vietnam, and uh, there was one, one kid. We were at, it was kind of a downtime in class, and one of the kids said, you ever kill anybody? And then he just, and this was a guy who was pretty, like, he was pretty, he was like the joking teacher, and but then he just kind of got dead serious. and was like, well, I shot my machine gun into the bushes a lot of times. Was there anybody in those bushes? <laughs> I never went to check. And, and that's just kind of like it. And he got up and walked out of the room. And Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is probably a broader discussion that we can get into today. But I feel like there has been like a real change within like kind of gun culture, violence culture, military culture, and the way we talk about it. That most of the veterans when I grew up were that mm-hmm. kind of story, right? Like, my dad's story was always about, well, I guess the first guy I shot was up in a tree because I heard gunshots from a tree, and I shot in the tree, and then I didn't hear gunshots anymore, right? And so, and then further back, like, both my grandfathers in World War II, they didn't really talk about it very much. But now we have to have, you know, everybody's everybody's American sniper, uh, everybody's an operator, right? Everybody's an operator. Did you hear uh, Patton Oswalt when he was on... uh Chapo Trap House talking about his dad right and like his dad right. I guess his dad was in Vietnam and he kind of had a similar story that just yeah like yeah like yeah shotguns would go off and yeah we all had I mean guns would go like machine right. guns would be going off and yeah we all had machine guns but we were still really scared right right, right. like <laughs> um, right yeah yeah and a lot of the stories are about being scared and not wanting to be there and it being horrible yeah. and not wanting to do it and now I think we've glorified it to the point that it's uh that is uh, super, super cool and it's clear-headed and it's rational thing to be. Which everybody's John McClane. Yeah, everybody's John. Everybody's shoes on. Mm-hmm. Everybody's John McClane with really good shoes. Yeah, <laughs> but still custody issues. <laughs> but I think another angle of that is also being explored in this and, um, is just well, you know, our other idea is to bring the military into schools and then also simultaneously turn schools into prisons, right? Like, we need... I've heard people, like, say... I'm, I haven't been on Facebook very much recently, but say kind of rationally on social media things like, well, yeah, that's why we need guards and metal detectors at every entrance and exit of a school. It's like, yeah, but then why... I mean, what is a school? What is a school at that point when you do it? Yeah. Like you, bulletproof glass. Yeah, we need bulletproof glass yeah. on all the doors. We need uh, like a like a panic room in each classroom. Yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy. Like then, so you want them to go to school in a prison, but I think you know to abstract this a little bit, we're talking about everything being militarized, but everything is also part of the carceral state where oh, we solve things by wars and prisons, and so we just turn something into a prison. There we go. Yeah. So I was reading this article this week, we'll go into the whole thing, but about um, the way they're trying to, one way they're trying to mitigate 
the economy of rural Kentucky where coal mining is no longer profitable is by putting more prisons there. And so a lot of the people who are formerly coal workers who don't want to sell out on their land and move out of the area are hoping to get jobs as prison guards at this prison that they might or might not build in rural Kentucky. Well, I remember when I lived in New Orleans, I remember Louisiana had uh, jails that held federal prisoners. I think it was federal prisoners. But basically rented out jail space, and that was how they Mm -hmm. paid for their sheriff's department. That's how they paid for a lot of local things by being part of the prison, the well, the prison economy. Yeah, I think the Claiborne County, uh, where I'm from, uh, sheriff's department, I think they still do that. I think they rent out jail space to state, I think it's state prisoners, but they have state prisoners uh, that are in their jails that... There's a really good story I read about New York State where that dynamic happens, where uh, most of the prisoners are from urban areas in the cities of New York and largely African-American, and then they're shipped to rural areas that are almost exclusively white areas. So the prison staff is all white. The prisoners are almost all black. And then, so the, you see racial disparities emerge in their discipline records, which, if you're locked up, is no small deal because that that could mean when you get out. That could mean like if you're in solitary. It means a lot of things. So it's it's kind of a, a form of urbanization that we're seeing take place where where the economy, the extraction economy, when it falters, is being replaced by the carceral economy of expanding prisons to to rural places. And they're literally being replaced because they build them on top of like um, sh- uh, strip mine, like the where they blow the top of the mountain off. They'll build it on. They'll build a prison on top of the on top of where a mountain, where the hill used to be, or the mountain used to be, where they blew all the coal off. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of blowing coal off the mountain, <laughs> Zell Miller, yeah. Zell Miller. Uh, <laughs> He's blo- he's rolling coal he, in heaven. He went now. to the old drunk the, old, the big drunk tank in the sky. <laughs> he's, uh, old Zell bought the farm. Yeah. He's gone. He's up there with him and Stephen Stephen Hawkins welcoming <laughs> him welcoming him into heaven. Prince is up there playing um, a guitar solo. David Bowie's got the microphone. Yeah. Stephen Hawkins is uh is rapping on his talk box and in yeah. old Nicole. Nicole Brown Simpson is dancing around. <laughs> Zell Miller saying, what's going on? <laughs> so the reason I'm making fun of a dead person, Zell Miller, is because uh, Zell, old Zell Miller took what could have been an inspirational life and turned it into being a... <laughs> into totally trying to bring shitty, back the Dixiecrats. Into being a shitty crank for the last miserable decade of his, of his life. Uh... So if you don't know, Zell Miller um, was in the drunk tank, the drunk tank of northern Georgia, one of the many drunk tanks of northern Georgia, uh, where, where he was trying to work his life out. And then he decided to join the Marine Corps, where we all know he served valiantly overseas in the battle of... Well, he did. He, he was in the Peace Corps military. Or in the Peace Corps. Sorry, <laughs> he was in the peacetime military uh, stateside. But this did not stop Zell. This did not stop Zell. Today's democratic leaders see America as an occupier, not a liberator. And nothing makes this Marine matter than someone calling American troops occupiers rather than liberators. Because Franklin Roosevelt led an army of liberators, not occupiers. Tell that to the lower half of the Korean Peninsula that is free because Dwight Eisenhower commanded an army of liberators, not occupiers. Tell that to the half a billion men, women, and children who are free today from Poland to Siberia because Ronald Reagan rebuilt a military of liberators, not occupiers. 
never in the history of the world has any soldier sacrificed more for the freedom and liberty of total strangers than the American soldier. And our soldiers don't just give freedom abroad. They preserve it for us here at home. For it has been said so truthfully that it is the soldier, not the reporter, who has given us the freedom of the press. It is the soldier. Not the point who has given us freedom of speech. It is the soldier, not the agitator, who has given us the freedom to protest. It is the soldier who salutes the flag, serves beneath the flag, whose coffin is draped by the flag, who gives that protester the freedom he abuses to burn that flag. No one should dare to even think about being the commander-in-chief of this country if he doesn't believe with all his heart that our soldiers are liberators abroad and defenders of freedom at home. Listing all the weapon systems that Senator Kerry tried his best to shut down sounds like an auctioneer selling off our national security. But Americans need to know the facts. The V-1 bomber that Senator Kerry opposed dropped 40 percent of the bombs in the first six months of enduring freedom. The V-2 bomber that Senator Kerry opposed delivered airstrikes against the Taliban in Afghanistan and Hussein's command post in Iraq. The F-14A Tomcats that Senator Kerry opposed shot down Qaddafi's Libyan MiGs over the Gulf of Sidra. The modernized F-14D that Senator Kerry opposed delivered missile strikes against Tora Bora. The Apache helicopter that Senator Kerry opposed took out those Republican Guard tanks in Kuwait in the Gulf War. The F-15 Eagles that Senator Kerry opposed flew cover over our nation's capital and this very city after 9-11. I could go on and on and on against the Patriot missile that shot down Saddam Hussein's Scud missiles over Israel, against the Aegis air defense cruiser, against the strategic defense initiative, against the Trident missile, against, against, against. This is, this is the man who wants to be the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Armed Forces. From uh, speaking at the Republican National Convention in 2004 against honest-to-God war hero John Kerry uh, and making his famous speech um, in which he, he chided John Kerry for voting no on an omnibus funding bill that um, didn't include the B-1 bomber or like lowered the B-1 bomber funding by 0.9% or something. Uh, where he came out and said, the B-1 bomber that Senator Kerry opposed dropped 40% of the bombs in the first six months of enduring freedom. The B-2 bomber, bomber that Senator Kerry opposed delivered airstrikes against the Taliban in Afghanistan and Hussein's command post in Iraq. The F-14A Tomcats that Tom Cruise so valiantly flew off the carrier deck before killing Goose while inverted. <laughs> uh, spoiler alert. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, Goose. So... I'm watching that right now. Actually, I'm reading the book. I'm actually reading. Yeah, the, the novelization is so. pretty good. I'm watching the animated series. <laughs> I'm reading the fan fiction where uh, Maverick and Goose have been lovers for years, hiding it from from Megan. I don't. I think that was actually a plot point in the movie. Maybe I was reading too much into it. <laughs> Are you just basing that on the volleyball scene? Well, in the tail writing. Spoiler, spoiler alert! Talk about spoiler alerts. Oh, uh, I see, I see. Uh, but so, yeah, so Zell Miller is now known for, for that speech and threatening to duel Wolf Blitzer on air. I'm assuming he died in his <laughs> duel. I don't want to look into it any further than just assuming he died in a duel. But 
Yeah, with a lot. He died in a duel with a lot. Yeah. Um, but people forget that he was one of those kind of populist Southern politicians who did occasionally say good things. Like, for example, um, when the first George Bush was president, he said of Dan Quayle, I know what Dan Quayle means when he says it's best for children to have two parents. You bet it is. And it would be nice for them to have trust funds, too. We can't all be born rich and handsome and lucky, and that's why we have a Democratic Party. My family would still be isolated and destitute if we had not had FDR's Democratic brand of government. I made it because Franklin Delano Roosevelt energized this nation. I made it because Harry Truman fought for working families like mine. I made it because John Kennedy's rising tide lifted even our tiny boat. I made it because Lyndon Johnson showed America that people who were born poor didn't have to die poor. And I made it because a man with whom I served in the Georgia Senate, a man named Jimmy Carter, brought honesty and decency and integrity to public service. So, And he was part of the Hope Scholarships. Uh, in Georgia, which, you know, if you're from Georgia, I know people in Georgia helps a lot of working class people go to college in Georgia. So it's one of those interesting things where, where some, something happened to Zell Miller along the way, and he lost the plot. And I don't say that just because he wasn't a Democrat anymore. That's, that's fine or whatever. It's because I he, mean, he was, so He never left well, the I party. Know that he wasn't a, a uh, campaigning for Democrats at the end. But he was he, a dino. Yeah, is that he? He seemed to just go weird, but I, but I um, guess that happens. And wasn't he? Uh, he became a big uh, NRA. Did he become he a board? Was he a big NRA. Yeah, he guy? became a board of the NRA. Yeah. He was on the and board. And that was probably the, after George H.W. Uh, Bush had quit. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was after. Uh, oh, it was Chris Matthews he challenged to a duel, not Wolf Blitzer, although either either way. I mean, he could really, if he won those duels, I wouldn't mind so much. You can, you can duel either of those guys, too. Uh, but have you ever but, seen um, uh, Chris Matthews with an epe? He's, he's insane. He just can really take you out. He's vicious. Gets in that, he's wearing his khakis, but he gets in the fencing crouch <laughs> in a sport, sport coat. But yeah, he was also part of all the um, the Justice Sunday events, the evangelical events. They were kind of, I think, precursor to the Tea Party. Uh, and he was also appointed by by George W. Bush to the American Battle Monuments Commission. So he he got his he got his award for covering for John Kerry. And I still like I know like the the Trump win is a hard one to swallow, and a lot of other ones were, but still. John Kerry losing to George W. Bush, I will never get over that election. And it's not that I think John Kerry was the greatest candidate ever, but he really needed to win that election. He really needed to win it. And uh, the Zell Miller enabled George W. Bush to have a second term. It's just unconscionable. Yes. Um, and it went all out to do it. That provided cover and provided cover for someone who served in the military stateside to just shit all over someone whose uh, military record, no matter what your feelings on Vietnam are, are still show levels of personal courage that, that I don't think Zell Miller. In any case, that's my, that's my bitching about Zell Miller. Do you guys have any fond memories of Zell Miller that you want to share with us now? Would this be the time to share our fond Zell Miller memories? I think that uh, um, he might have supported did he did he stand up against Saxby Chambliss that would be something uh, uh, worthwhile to say about him something did he something because that positive. that also was something that made me no he endorsed Saxby Chambliss oh did he mm-hmm. I, I don't think he uh, uh, I think he endorsed him later against Jim Martin oh okay um, but any, but I don't know. How can you even, even at that point, that's disgusting, right? Like, how how do you back the guy? Uh, yeah, I'm looking it up I mean, here. Yeah, sure enough, he did support Saxon I mean, Chambliss, the worst. But the campaign against, yeah, the campaign against Max Cleveland was just disgusting. That's just one of the most disgusting campaigns. What was, they ran an ad, like, comparing Max Cleveland to, a, they called him a terrorist, right? Who lost all but one of his limbs in Vietnam from diving on a grenade. Yeah. And they called him uh, a terrorist. And then I believe Ann Coulter said that um, he was actually a drunk who dropped their grenade, and that's the only reason. Oh, man. That he was injured. Uh. Yeah, it was just disgusting. It was really disgusting. 
<laughs> All right, well, let's leave um, Zell Miller behind. Let the let the dead yeah, bury the dead. He's gone to his reward. <laughs> he's up there now, partying with Prince and David <laughs> Bowie, who said, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> um, yeah. All right, well, that's our show for this week, baseball fans. That's right. All right. Yeah, we'll see you. See you on see, the see, uh, in the, see in the see real out season there on the pitch. Yeah. See you. See, <laughs> see between the, the lines. Goodbye. Thanks, guys. Yeah.